Sayadaw Tejaniya says that as a yogi, you have three jobs. The first job that you have is to hear and apply right view. And I'll explain that. The second job is to develop awareness or practice cultivating awareness, establishing awareness. And the third job is to persevere in maintaining that awareness from the time you wake up to the time you fall asleep. So it's important that when we begin this practice, and we can say when we begin with our first class in mindfulness, or when we begin this retreat, or when we begin each period of uh, active cultivation of awareness, that we want to uh, establish what is called right view. Now, you know when you watch a news clip online or on TV, and there's some newsworthy event that's happening, and so they show you this clip, this 30-second clip of somebody doing something, saying something, and you see for yourself, and you hear for yourself what actually happened. Then after that clip is finished, uh, spin meisters, commentators come on to tell you how to understand what you saw. And those on the one end of the political spectrum will spin the story one way, and those on the other end of the political spectrum will spin the story another way. And then there's the, you know, the religious commentators that will spin the story their way, and the economists will spin the story that way, and your mother will spin it that way, and your father will spin it another way, and at the end of 30 minutes of listening to commentaries, you have no idea what happened. We have no idea how to understand what happened. You saw, you heard for yourself. But because there are so many ways to understand what you saw, the significance of it, the value of it, the implications of it for you, you can be quite confused. So when Sadhguru says, oh, we need to hear a skillful view, we need to hear a right view, what is he actually saying? He's saying that when we begin, and as we sustain this, this practice of awareness, we should, we should understand it correctly. We should, under, we should know how to understand the practice, how to understand our experience, how to understand the teachings in a way that is skillful for our benefit. And the teachings that I'm offering and Alexis is offering and that Sairutajaniya offers are grounded in, rooted in, uh, derived from the teachings of the Buddha. Now the Buddha's spin, if you want to consider it that way, was to look at experience and to clearly understand is this suffering or not? 
Or does this lead to suffering? Or does it lead to the end of suffering? Now you'd think that that, well, for us, it's kind of a compelling uh, view to take of things. Is this suffering? Does it lead to suffering? Does it not suffering? Does it lead to the end of suffering? But that's not the that's not the predominant <clears throat> paradigm for many commentators, spin masters. And you know, we have been under the influence of commentators, those who are offering their explanation their understanding of what's going on since we were born, starting with mom and dad and all of the peers and teachers and authorities that they could enlist to support their view of things. And here we are. Now we experience life through the lens of what we learn from, the collective lens, lenses, of what we learn from our parents, our society, our culture, uh, our government, economists, the weather, uh, our religion of uh, family of birth, and we are conditioned. The way that we see the world, the way that we understand the world, our experience, when I say the world, I mean our experience, is through these lenses. Now, you might think, well, can I just figure this out for myself? Well, no, because every, every child is born into a family, a culture, a society, under the rule of a government, in, an, in a certain economic system. And we need to learn the ways of navigating within that realm. We live in that realm. We need to learn for our getting on in life you know, to, 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 to kind of make, to make sense of it all, to, to put it together. And so we need to learn the rules of whatever society and culture and family we're, we're born into. And so if we don't follow those rules, then, you know, it's, it's, it's suffering. <laughs> it's suffering. And even though other cultures and other societies and other families have other rules other ways of understanding, other assumptions, other beliefs. If that's not ours, then we don't, we don't fit. So it's important that we, we understand that it's essential that we were and are conditioned into the lifestyle and the way of understanding life that we have. But we might also acknowledge that the Buddha offered alternative views of how to understand experiences, how to understand life's experience. And as the Buddha himself acknowledged, a lot of the Dharma, the teachings of the Buddha, and the practices uh, required to realize the Dharma in your own life, go against the stream Meaning, those teachings go against the stream of the conditioning of the society we grew up in. Huh. Okay. So now the Buddha is saying, what I teach is suffering in the end of suffering. 
what your parents and society and culture have taught you is how to get along and uh, kind of don't make trouble for yourself and others, which may or may not be suffering or in the end of suffering. So the Buddha said that, and in the in the eightfold, uh, the noble eightfold path, which is the path of practice to be developed by each one of us in order to realize the Dharma, the first element of this path is right view, how to understand experience. And the lens through which the Buddha was seeing is, is, as I said, is this suffering or not suffering, or does it lead to suffering, or does it lead to the end of suffering? Now, at the time of the Buddha, Sariputta was second to the Buddha in the development of wisdom, and he was approached by some monks at one time who were debating what right view is. And so they asked Sariputta, what, how, do, how, do we, how do we establish right view in our own mind? Because it's so important to, you know, when we, when we undertake this endeavor that is, well, novel for most of us when we start, it's good to have an understanding of what it is you're doing and why you're doing it and how to understand what your experience is. And so they asked the Sariputta, how do we establish, how do we get right view in our minds? What is right view? And Sariputta said, well, there are two elements to right view or skillful viewing of experience and establishing it in your heart. The first is, you have to hear what the right view is from someone else. Well, we're educated, intelligent, uh, modern, uh, men and women living in the West that have access to all the world's knowledge, and who are you to tell me that I need to hear it from someone else? I can figure it out for myself is often our attitude. In fact, a lot of our education is problem-solving. How to solve, how to look at situations and solve these problems so that you can avoid, well, unpleasantness at least, suffering at best. And yet Sariputta said, no, you actually have to hear the Buddha's right view from someone else. It is not possible for you on us ordinary uh, human beings to figure it out. Meaning, now just, just imagine, you sit down and somehow you have good mindfulness and you're able to look into this mind and see what's going on. I don't know what you see or have seen when you first started, but what I saw was mess. I mean, it was, it was pretty chaotic. And to think that somebody could sit there and watch what's going on in the mind and figure out how to stop suffering or see the way to the end of suffering through that maze of you know, emotions and thoughts and beliefs and confusion and bewilderment and opinions and views. and Well, that's pretty amazing. Okay. But you know what? We have heard other right views that we never could have figured out for ourselves, and we believe them quite readily. For example, you know, uh, if we paid attention carefully to our days here, 
we see that the sun rises over there, passes overhead every day and sits over there. And a few hours later it rises again over here, passes overhead and sits over there. From our direct and immediate perception, we would say the sun is circling us. It's going around us. That's, our, that's, that's the, the conclusion that we would draw from our problem-solving mind that observes the situation and describes and understands what we see. But we know that that's the wrong understanding. There, are, there have been those amongst us in the human realm who have been able to observe that and the movements of the stars and the movements of the moon and over the course of time have come to realize no, the sun doesn't circle the earth. In fact, the earth spins on its axis, creating the appearance of day and night. And in fact, it's the earth that travels around the sun, taking a year to do so. Now, we have been told that this is the right view. The earth circles the sun. That's right view. Now, you've been told that repeatedly. You've been tested on it in probably third grade. And, you know, if you didn't get it right, you got a bad mark. You suffered. Because you had the wrong view. Okay? So right view leads to the end of suffering. Huh. <laughs> wrong, view, wrong view leads to more suffering. So, now we have been told that, we believed it. Now, is there anybody in the room that actually believes their own experience from their own reasoning? No? We believe what we've been told. So I'm going to tell you what the Buddha said, what the Buddha's right view is. Now you can you can agree or not, but the Buddha said this is the right view. This is a skillful view. So tonight I want to speak about that was a lot of long preamble, wasn't it? <laughs> tonight I'm going to speak about guess what? Right view. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I just wanted to let you know that right view has this place of predominance and prominence in the Noble Eightfold Path. It is the first of the wisdom factors. And based upon right view, if we develop skillful thoughts, right attitude of mind, then we can practice effectively with the other factors. So I want to speak about some right views of the Dharma. The Dharma with a capital D. Now the Dharma with a capital D is the Buddhist teachings. And the Buddha's teachings are his articulation of what he observed to be the way things come to be. The way things come to be is the Dharma, the way things are. And it's not that the Buddha invented this good theory about life and death and suffering and not suffering. It's that he observed it and then articulated it. Now, whether the Buddha ever came upon the face of the earth or not, the way things are is the way things are. What makes our times and our opportunities so distinctive is we live in the time of the Buddha's knowledge being available. And so we have these uh, teachings from one who was able to observe in a very um, accurate way what was going on, and to understand it in a very profound way, from the lens of 
or through the lens of, does this lead to suffering or does it lead to the end of suffering? So the Buddha's teachings are an articulation of the skillful way of understanding experience that leads to the end of suffering. Now there are other ways of understanding experience that might lead to more suffering or lead to making more money or lead to more whatever you want or less something. But the Buddha was concerned about suffering. So we can say that the Buddha was really a supreme scientist of nature, the nature of things. He, not, not the nature of trees and, and frogs and seasons, so much as the nature of the mind, the nature of the heart, the nature of suffering, the nature of our experience moment to moment. And one of the uh, understandings that we believe and we, we've, we've learned and that he also confirmed is that things happen due to causes and conditions. Things don't happen accidentally. It's not like things happen for no reason, for no causal condition. We, we understand the law of cause and effect. You know, if you do certain things or certain conditions come together, it will produce certain effects. And these laws of nature that the Buddha articulated were not apparent uh, before his time. But we in the West, we, we, we understand the laws of nature. We understand that the biological laws that we are heir to have a very uh, compelling uh, mandate in our life. We cannot, as a human being, as a biological being, we cannot escape the biological laws of nature. You know, biological laws say whatever is born, going to live out its life and it's going to die. We're not going to escape that. It's not like we have choice. We, we, we submit to the biological laws because they are a law unto themselves. And it's not arbitrary. You don't have to believe it. It's still going to happen. So, there's also the physical laws of the universe that we are heir to. The law of gravity is not a, cho it's not a, a choice. You know, it's not like you either choose to, okay, I'm going to agree to that law or not. If you don't buy into, live in alignment with the law of gravity, <laughs> you wouldn't be here right now. Because it is a law. It's a commanding uh, condition that we must you know, acknowledge or adhere. And these, these laws are very uh, obvious. Uh, and we study them. Uh, Western science has studied the biological and the physical laws of nature for a long time. So we don't have any trouble with that. But the Buddha spent his lifetimes studying the natural laws of the unfolding of the mind. Now, Western science is only now beginning to study the natural laws governing the activity of the mind. Neuroscientists are having a field day with uh, suggestions from Tibetan monks and other Buddhist scholars as to where to look and how to look and what it is they're looking at, what it is they're seeing. So, what are these uh, natural laws that we are heir to since we have a mind? 
Well, one of them is the unfolding stream of consciousness. Now, we can understand that life is just an, an, an onflowing stream of experience, one moment after another, which at times seems to be pretty random, pretty chaotic, but it's only because we haven't paid close enough attention to see the cause-effect relationship between moments of that unfolding. So Buddha did, the Buddha looked at that, and one of the things that he discovered in the stream of consciousness is that we all have inherited and now, what would you say, live with this, what is called, mental legacies. The mental legacies from all prior actions, all prior mental actions, uh, skillful or unskillful, wholesome or unwholesome, have left an imprint on the mind. And that is a, an imprint which is carried along moment to moment for as long as the stream of consciousness goes on. And it may be more than this lifetime. Now, I'm not going to ask you to believe in the dogma of uh, recurring lives, as the Buddha understood them. But even just within this lifetime, you can see the power of habit. You know, you learn something when you're young, you do it for 20 years, you don't forget. It has a powerful imprint. It leaves a powerful imprint on the mind which, if it was unskillful at the time, is very difficult to reverse. And so, for those of you who are parents or have uh, seen nephews and nieces uh, soon after being born, you know that when a child, when we, or any child, comes into this world, out of the womb and into this world, they're not a blank slate. They come with a personality fully developed, and it doesn't take long before you begin to see it. Within hours, certainly days, you can see that this one is different than that one. You know, brothers and sisters, or brothers and brothers, they can be pretty different from one another. Same parents, same uh, social or uh, life situation, growing up in the same family, very different personalities. They didn't learn this from their parents. They didn't learn that personality from their parents. They came with it. And so, we might ask, well, where, where did this come from? You know, well, the Buddha had an understanding of that, that actions in past lives have left their imprint on the stream of consciousness, the mind, which took up residence in the womb of this new being, and comes with a fully formed, uh, we won't say personality so much as default settings in the mind. Some are, you know, really uh, very content and happy babies, and some are not. Some are really kind and generous from an early age, and some are not. Some are very, um, well, whatever. And from that baseline of mental attributes, you know, parents and peers doing the best they can, try to condition them into this this culture, this family, this culture, this society. Now, we too are kind of heir to this uh, mental legacy, these mental legacies, both the wholesome, you know, we all have a certain 
what would you call it, a baseline uh, development of generosity, a baseline development of loving-kindness, a baseline development of wisdom, of renunciation, of truthfulness, of uh, ethical uh, integrity. It's kind of a, there's kind of a, a place where we just don't, that we kind of start out from. And we don't easily fall below it, and only with effort do we rise above it. Now, not only are there wholesome qualities to this mental legacy that we are heir to, or is the foundation upon, our, upon which our personality is developed, but there's also the unskillful, unwholesome uh, potentials. And we all have a certain baseline or tendency towards the reactivity of aversion, or frustration, or disappointment, or greed, or attachment, or identification, or fear, or anxiety. And some people are very anxious and very fearful. Other people, not so much. Some people are really prone to depression. Other people never see it. Why? Oh, well, the scientists might study the chemicals in the brain, and that has in fact true. But the Buddha would say there's also a predisposition, kind of a baseline uh, mentality from which we work. It's a way of understanding. It may be, may or may not be confirmed by Western science, but it's a way of understanding. So now, as we practice our awareness and we come to pay attention to ourselves in an ongoing way, we are going to come upon. This, these baseline ment- mental structures in our uh, mind. Now, if you don't know what your baseline mentality is around wholesome and unwholesome uh, qualities of mind, ask your partner, they know. <laughs> if you don't, they know. Because they live with them, and they don't have your spin on it, so to speak. So we have these uh, mental legacies of wholesome and unskillful. Uh, we also have what, what is called in, in the, the Buddhist psychology basic Buddhist personality types. Six different kinds. Not just the three, uh, attachment, aversion, and deluded. There's also the faith type, the wisdom type, and the, uh, I guess you'd call it, uh, thinking, thinking type. And these are uh, kind of like the predominant <coughs> tendency of the mind. So, you know, I might ask, how many of you feel that you have more of an aversive personality than a greedy personality? Aversive, okay. Greedy personalities, yeah. And the rest of you are deluded. You may not know it. <laughs> okay. So, there's ways of, there's ways of really uh, identifying you know, kind of the, the composition of your own personality from uh, around this, the, spec, the, uh, kind of the perspective of these six different um, Buddhist personality types. But we see them. We, we, we can see them, and we will see them as we, as we attend to the unfolding of the mind with more continuity, more detail, more willingness to see the truth of the way things have come to be. And that's the Dharma. And that's what mindfulness is. Mindfulness is this uh, remembering to recognize what this moment's experience is. And mindfulness comes with this um, quality of mind called ujjukata, as the Buddha understood it, which, is, which means straightness of mind, meaning 
No spin. Meaning, you just see things as they are. No spin on it. Not spinning it in your favor or in anyone else's favor or you're not kind of making us more out of something than it really is and you're not adding any uh, supposed or assumed value. You just see this is the way it is. Period. So that mindfulness doesn't lie. Mindfulness sees the way things are. Now, it still is up to understanding or wisdom to understand things correctly. But mindfulness sees. So... When we, as we develop this mindfulness, this awareness practice, we're going to see our minds more clearly. We may not like what we see. <laughs> we may not, uh, you know, as I don't know who was it, who said it, but self knowledge is not always good news. You know, we find out about ourselves and we go, oh my, oh my Buddha, uh, darn, you know, it's worse than I thought. Um, but, Nevertheless, that is the that is the power of, of mindfulness to see. So, what we're doing as we observe our unfolding or this unfolding mind is we are studying nature. We're understand. We're studying the laws of nature as on display in this being called Steve, in this mind. So that everything that we see, everything that we feel, everything that we experience, everything that we're mindful of is natural. It's nature. It's the result of causes and conditions. It's not accidental. It's normal. In fact, everything we experience is normal experience for a human being. As painful as it is, as surprising as it might be, as humiliating, deplorable, brutal, whatever it is, it's like, it's normal. Okay, that doesn't, I don't mean to minimize the, the pain of it, the power of it, the significance of it in your life as a conditioning influence. It can be very powerful. But it's not a mistake. It's not unnatural. It's nature. So, just understanding that, you know, just having this understanding as a right view, as a skillful view, what you experience in your, in your, in your meditation is not a mistake. It's not unnatural. It's, it arises due to causes and conditions. And if we pay close enough attention, we'll understand those causes, we'll understand the conditions, and we'll understand how to disentangle, how it came to be, and how to disentangle our identification from it. So this is an important understanding of the Dharma, uh, the teachings of the Buddha. Now there's several, um, there's several views or understandings of meditation practice that I'd like to share also. Because we in the West have this enviable, no, have this, um, this tremendous boon of having access to all the world's traditions. Social, uh, cultural, tribal, shamanistic, religious, spiritual traditions, and and every every variant on it. We just have access to an infinity of human expressions of what it's all about. That's a great boon. That's a great benefit. But it's a great responsibility to sort through it all to find out what is really valuable and essential for your own life and your own end of suffering. 
So there are many, many different kinds of meditation. And many of us in the room have practiced many, whether it's tranquility meditation or mantra meditation or visualizations or loving kindness or compassion or insight or mindfulness or mindlessness or <laughs> trance or whatever it is you want to do. There, there's just lots of different, uh, well, different practices to obtain or attain the different goals of cultural, spiritual traditions around the world. So, for our purposes of practicing mindfulness for the development of insight, wisdom, it's important to understand that in every moment, something is being known. This is the mind. The mind is a knowing machine. It knows. Now, what does it know? Well, it knows sight, sound, smells, taste, touch, thoughts. But that's it. The mind only knows six things. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. You'd think, with only knowing six things, it'd be easy to kind of be aware of what's going on. <laughs> but there's a lot of variety, of course. So, and, and not all of us are practicing, not all beings are practicing mindful awareness of these six things to begin with. So, when I say that something is being known, what I'm saying is that the mind takes an object the mind grasps an object in every moment. You know, sight, sound, smells, taste, touch, thoughts. Awareness practice is to remember to recognize the present moment's experience, meaning remember to recognize the present moment object that's being known by the mind. Now, sometimes we practice mindfulness with a chosen or a primary meditation object, like the breath at the nostrils, or the breath, uh, the rising and falling of the abdomen as you breathe in and out. That's a chosen object. And we can steady our attention on it, directing our attention with some continuity to just being with this experience. Breathing in, breathing out, or rising, falling, or posture, or sounds, or whatever it is. But it's a chosen object. Nevertheless, it is an object that's being known moment by moment. So we're trying to pay attention to the present moment's object, whether we choose it, or whether we just allow the mind to go where it will and try to recognize what is being known. But as we all experience today, even with our best intention, our total devotion and dedication and aspiration to be present moment by moment, we fail miserably. Right? I'm not the only one. Right? <laughs> you know, the mind, the mind has a mind of its own. Right? It just goes off thinking about anything it wants to think, and whether we want to think about it or not, it can get entangled in all kinds of painful stuff that we would choose, that we'd prefer not to not to be aware of. And when, we, when the mind wanders off into the past or the, or the future or some fantasy land in the, in the present, we don't know. Now, here we are, we're sitting here, really trying to pay attention to what's going on. That's our sole goal, it's just like, what's going on, moment to moment. And when the mind decides to say goodbye, we're lost. Right? We don't know. We are so stupid 
We are so ignorant at the time. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying you're ignorant or anything like that. I'm just saying the mind is so deluded that when we're lost in thought, we don't know that we're lost in thought. We don't know what we're thinking about. We don't know whether we like it or not. We don't know if we're sitting, standing, walking, lying down. We don't know our gender. We don't know our age. We don't know, we don't know anything. We don't know our name. We, it's as if the we that we're so familiar with and so attached to ceases to exist. Right? It's like we're not there. But when that stream of thought, that wandering in la-la land, comes to an end, we're back. So, here I am. And sometimes, often, we can remember everything we were just thinking about. Right? You know, you just had a daydream, and you, while you were daydreaming, you didn't, you didn't know it. But when you come out of the daydream, you can remember it. So clearly, the mind was knowing something, some part of the mind was knowing something all that time. But you weren't aware of it. So what we're doing here in meditation practice is... We're cultivating this awareness. We're not cultivating objects. You know, we're not trying to have different objects or more objects or a single object. They're happening anyway. What we're trying to cultivate is this awareness, which is the recognition of the present moment's experience. So that when the mind goes off on a train of thought about the past, or about the future, about the present, about some person, some other time, some other place. So when the mind wanders off, we're aware of it. We recognize that. So we're not making thoughts the enemy. We're not making the wandering mind the enemy. We're, we're making lack of awareness the challenge. The goal is to, to be aware, to remember, to recognize this experience. So that's an important distinction for you to understand in your meditation practice, or as you practice meditation. We're not cultivating objects, meaning we're not trying to cultivate a continuity of being on the breath. That's not, that's not the goal. The goal is to recognize, remember to recognize, whatever is predominant in your experience. The field of our meditative objects in insight practice is our own body and mind. It's not primarily other people or external uh, environmental experiences, trees and birds and people and plants. We can't help but notice them, that's true, but what we notice about that experience is seeing's happening, hearing's happening, feeling's happening, thinking's happening rather than, well, look at that wonderful tree, which we're familiar with. That's, that's Western science. Now we're talking about the Buddhist science of observing the mind. So the meditative field of our experience is our own body and mind. And it's more uh, an inner experience than an outer experience. We can't limit it to the only the inner experience because there's, you know, we see, we hear, we, we, we recognize this outer world also. But primarily it's our inner world and our relationship to the outer world that we want to be paying attention to. The objects of our awareness 
can be anything. Well, in fact, everything. Sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, thoughts, all the emotions, all kinds of thinking processes, all kinds of sensations that appear in the body, and, and anything else that you experience. Beliefs, assumptions, uh, ideas, uh, hallucinations, uh, whatever it is that comes into the mind can be recognized as the object that's being known. Now it's important to recognize some degree of the, uh, both the complexity and the nature of objects so that you, that you, that you can begin to identify in every moment what the object is that's being known. It may be a sensation, as we were talking about this morning. It may be a sense of reception. It may be a sensation in the body. It may be an activity of the mind, thinking, planning. It may be an emotion. Love, hate, fear, joy, sorrow, jealousy. So, cataloging the range of objects is an inevitable uh, challenge and task in practice. Because sometimes we feel, often we feel, that there are some objects that are really special. You know, that they're, they're the real, they're something that we really should uh, hang on to. Like, you know, when we start to feel joy. When we start to feel joy, we think, this this is one object that I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to not be aware of. I want to be aware of it, and I, and I want it to stay. Or when we finally, you know, after struggling with knee pain, and back pain, and restless mind, we have a good sitting. You know, we have a good sitting, and we say, ah, oh, so calm, <laughs> it's so quiet, wow, this is it! You know, as one of our students said, you know, there's, there's nothing like a good sitting to ruin the rest of your day. <laughs> because as soon as you have a good sitting, you think, oh, this is the way it's going to be for the rest of the retreat. It's kind of calm and clear. Or, on the converse, uh, when we, you know, sitting there with screeching pain in the body and restless mind and, you know, torpor that just is, you know, wrapping you up in a big heavy blanket, you think, oh, this is the way it's going to be. Why did I come to this retreat? Right? The mind, the mind is like that. The mind assumes all kinds of things, has beliefs, you know, mistaken beliefs about all of our experiences. So what mindfulness does is sees the experience for just what it is, without adding any spin. No positive spin, no negative spin. It's just this. Clearly, awareness practice is the work of the mind. It's not what posture you're in. It's not whether you're sitting on a cushion or a chair or cross-legged or, you know, Burmese style or uh, whether you're laying down or walking fast or walking slow. That's not the determinant of whether one is aware or not. In fact, you can be aware in any posture, at any pace, you cannot outrun your mind. You can't. No, you can't. You can't move faster than the mind can go. You can't. You can't do anything to escape the mind. And so the mind is always with you. 
what we what we're learning here is how to recognize the mind in all of the activities of our life. Now here, admittedly on retreat, we do limit the activities to, you know, pretty pretty quiescent activities and pretty non a non proliferation of choices. You know, you can sit, walk, stand, uh, walk faster, walk slower, um, with your eyes open or your eyes closed. That's about it. And there's a couple of meals for entertaining. You know, but you should be mindful of eating too. So. <laughs> So meditation is the work of the mind, or this awareness. You can see that awareness is not about creating some kind of experience. It's not about making something happen. Rather, it's learning how to recognize the presence of mind in each moment. How to remember to recognize what's happening. And this is awareness. Now, when I say that meditation is the work of the mind, we often talk about and use the word mindfulness and awareness synonymously. And for most of the retreat, we'll be using the word mindfulness and awareness synonymously, meaning the activity that we're developing here, that we're cultivating here, being aware. But actually, it is the function of the mental state mindfulness to remember. That's why we, we, we emphasize mindfulness. The mindfulness element in meditation practice is really the cultivation of remembering. Mindfulness also observes, but its function is to remember, and its manifestation is to observe, it's to, to see what's actually going on, once it remembers to attend to the present moment. But there's other... Uh, qualities that are present in mind that is aware. There's some amount of energy, some amount of faith, some amount of tranquility, some amount of uh, acceptance, some amount of connecting and sustaining your attention to the object, some amount of understanding the object or being having some understanding of it. It might be insightful, it might not. But it's important to understand that we're not just cultivating mindfulness, the remembering. Cultivating mindfulness and understanding and faith and equanimity and tranquility along with mindfulness. Now, even as we learn to observe a present moment's experience, we often see that mindfulness comes with an agenda. You know, and even this afternoon we were talking about different ways of um, well, really contaminating our mindfulness when we when we come at the present moment with the idea that we're going to figure it out. Figuring out is an agenda that we sometimes attach to our mindfulness, or explaining. You know, something is going on and we're observing it, and we're looking for the explanation, how to explain it, why it's happening or what's happening rather than just observing. So, when we speak about right attitudes of mind, we're right thoughts or right attitudes of mind, we're really talking about, is your mindfulness being um, accompanied by some agenda, or some, um, uh, some assumptions that it's supposed to figure out or explain or fulfill or confirm or 
you know, sometimes we, we talk about uh, investigating, you know, digging into the, into, the, into the mind to find the sources of uh, tension or the sources of suffering in our life. And sometimes we can get a little too directive about that. And that's not what, that's not what mindfulness is. Mindfulness is just observing, remembering and observing. So look in your uh, practice, as you practice, and see whether there's some other agenda or some other uh, task that you're asking mindfulness to do for you, rather than other other than just remember and observe. So we're we're we're, we're practicing mindfulness. We're practicing developing this awareness in order to understand. So we approach the present moment's experience with this attitude of interest. Now, most of us like pleasant experience, and we don't like unpleasant experience. But to the to the to the to mindfulness itself, there's no difference. A pleasant experience is just an experience. An unpleasant experience is just another object to be known. It's we who assign the I like it, I don't like it. This is good, this is bad. And when we see that, we have to recognize, oh now, how can, I, how can I observe this experience that I don't like, that's unpleasant, that I don't like, how can I observe it with a neutral mind, without this disliking? We have to see. We have to see, oh, there's aversion in the mind. There's, there's I don't like it, I want to get rid of it in the mind. And so, this is an attitudinal adjustment that we have to recognize uh, when we're caught in an attitude other than interest. It's kind of a kind of a clean interest in just wanting to know what's this? What's this? What's this? Rather than I want to know the pleasant, I don't want to know the unpleasant. Now Mark Epstein um, a Buddhist psychoanalyst in New York, a colleague of ours, he says that the Buddhist view, the right view of Buddhist, has consistently demonstrated that it is the perspective of the one who suffers that determines whether any experience perpetuates suffering or is a vehicle for awakening. It's the view of the one who suffers. To work something through means to change your view. And if we try instead just to change our reaction to something, we may achieve some short-term success, but we remain bound to the force of attachment or aversion that we're trying to be free from. Now, in plain English, what this means is as we observe our experience and we come upon unpleasant experience and we see the aversive reaction in the mind, how are we going to change our wrong understanding of this experience that seems, seems to compel us to aversion? Because it's unpleasant. Okay? So we could say that we have this wrong view. We have this view that Unpleasantness should be gotten rid of. It's painful, it's hurtful, it's harmful, and I want to get rid of it. That's our view. If something's pleasant, we want more of it. That's our view. But that's not the Dharma view. 
The Dharma view is things are the way they are, they arise due to causes and conditions. Can we be with it just as it is? So how are we going to change our view of I don't like this to I can be with this? Well, just hearing this right view is important, but it's not enough. And in fact, there's quite a lot of quite a lot of mistaken assumptions in the field of meditation and even mindfulness these days, where sometimes we believe or assume that if we hear right view, we have right view. But right view or views are how we understand things is not a matter of belief. It's a matter of deep conditioning. And so what we're doing with practice is we're paying attention to our experience and our views of them, skillful views or unskillful views, in order to see things the way they are. If we see things the way they are, then we will have, we will, we will cultivate right view. Even if we have initially a wrong view of experience. So, cut to the chase. So something's happening, we have a lot of aversion, and we think, I should be averse. This is, this is, this is a, an unskillful thing, it's an unwholesome thing, it's bad, it's wrong, and uh, uh, I'm averse to it, I'm frustrated by it, or I'm angry at it, and I should be angry at it, because it's, it's, it's not right. right. Self-righteous indignation. Been there, done that, haven't we? Okay. But, you know, aversion is who's suffering. <laughs> you can't blame your aversion on anybody else. It's your own. You know, it's your own lack of understanding or wrong understanding that allows you to default to aversion and thinking that this is a skillful way of responding to the situation. It's not. You're suffering. Now, remember, the Buddha's... The Buddha's view was always around suffering. Does this lead to suffering for myself and others or not? I remember. So, this couple was going to the three-month retreat at the Meditation Center in Massachusetts. And uh, they were from the Northwest and they were going to the East Coast where the three-month course runs from, at that time, mid-September to mid-December from late summer, Indian summer, beautiful, nice weather, to, the, well, early, midwinter. So, you have to take a, a three seasons worth of clothes. So, this couple was discussing what kind of clothes to take. And they got into a snit, as only couples can. <laughs> and, and they were arguing over how warm the clothes had to be for mid-December. And it was a it was a a knockdown drag out. It wasn't resolved until the middle of the three month retreat after they'd been there for a while, when one of them came into one of the teachers and said, "You know, I've been bothered by this argument I had, you know, recounting the story." And then she said, "You know, I finally realized I could either be right or stop suffering." You can either defend yourself and your rightness, or you can let go of that opinion, that view and opinion, and stop suffering. 
The Buddha's choice, the choice of the Dharma is going to lead us to, is to stop suffering. What is it you have to do to stop suffering? Rather than, what is it you have to do to be right? It's hard to be, it's hard to give up our attachment to being right. Isn't it? You know, we get into an argument and we don't want to, we don't want to, we'd rather suffer. We make choices to suffer in order to be right. We've got a lot to learn. I've run out of time. There's more, of course, um, tomorrow. <laughs> but let me just say that Sayadaw Udejaniya says of the Pasna, of this development of mindfulness and wisdom, he says, the Pasna always steps back to see things more clearly whereas samatha or tranquility meditations practice dives into the object and gets absorbed in it. Stepping back and watching allows understanding to arise. And he says also, being aware intelligently, being aware intelligently, will help you to deepen your practice, to come to new understandings. Ultimately, it will help you to fulfill the objective the objective of mindfulness, which is insight. Okay, so what we're doing here is practicing mindfulness, remembering to recognize the present moment's experience, in order to understand things as they are. To come to this insight, this, this new way of understanding our experience that, well, frees us from suffering. So let's just sit for a moment and let the words quiet down.